You can text the number uh, via your phone, even right now, uh, just beyond what you see in your programs and uh, on the announcements uh, and notes. There's a note side on the other side. Uh, there's a few uh, just that, that we need to add to. And so right after service today, there is a, uh, if you're a parent of a PCC youth, so 7th, uh, 12th grader, uh, and you, you just, you want to uh, kind of have an invitation of ownership uh, and an invitation to ask questions and figure things out uh, along with the leaders here, uh, right, that, this is your time right after service, uh, right here in the sanctuary. Just kind of gather on this side of the room um, is where it will be. And, uh, and they'll, you'll be able to do that. There is a, uh, you men in the room, we do quarterly men's gatherings uh, on top of our men's conference uh, on April 10th. So just take notes. Like take a, take a note on April 10th from 7 a.m., that's a Saturday, uh, to noon. We are having our men's gathering where we are just looking to Jesus, longing to be with Jesus and gather with other men. Uh, it looks like to be a Christ-centered man, a man after Jesus together. Uh, and so we just invite you, make plans now. Love your family, uh, if that's you, now. Uh, date your bride now, so when that day comes, you're intentionally creating space and room for you to be able to be there. Um, and so do that process now. Um, and as we look at this, this Easter season and this Lent season, uh, we have a Good Friday gathering coming up on April 2nd. Uh, that's at 6 p.m. That's a Friday, uh, obviously. I hope you caught that. Uh, where we are just looking uh, together and sitting in the paradox that Christ's death is for our good. <laughs> and we're sitting there just for, for that night, for that moment, just to somberly reflect on what Christ's death has done on our behalf and all that it's achieved and what put him there and, and just reflect on that in worship and prayer in, in the Bible and God's word. So April 2nd, 6 p.m. and then our Easter gathering where we get to celebrate the day death died, man. How awesome is that? The day that death lost its sting, the day that Jesus used death to kill death, to conquer the grave, to give us new life. Man, there's no, that's the greatest news you and I could ever hear. I already, I'm already, like, I want to go into a message already for Easter, and I can't, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but, I, man, we just invite you to invite those who, who are near to the throne and those who are far just to hear the good news of the gospel, that you are loved, that you are adopted through a payment that you didn't pay, but that rather he paid on your behalf. Um, and then right after that service, uh, this is a surprise add-on, we're having an Easter egg hunt. And so you kiddos, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt right after service. Uh, so what we need leading up to that is donations of filled Easter eggs. So if that's you, whether you can do 10 eggs or you can do 50 or you can do 100, um, provide that. We'll have it at the Connect desk, just a bin where you can drop those off just in like grocery bags uh, from here till Easter day. So that would be awesome if we could just rally around and uh, love on our kids in a unique way. Uh, and I love that, uh, that there's that heart that bubbled up from our body, from our flock, Hey, we want to do an Easter egg hunt. Awesome. What do you need? <laughs> That's what we need. So, um, yeah, there's that. All right. Anything else, y'all? I've missed some in the past, and I'll miss them in the future. So now is your time to speak up if you wish. All right. Let's dive into Matthew 5. <clears throat> it's where we've been. It's where uh, Devin, Devin preached a, a message on David and Goliath last week, and we're just diving back in. To the Sermon on the Mount, listening to the words of, of Jesus here, listening to the teaching of our rabbi, of our Savior. 
Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be... Um, I'm going to be a little choppy just because we're, uh, we're, we're preaching through 21 through 48 this morning. And so I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read a, a, a kind of break it up for us here. So Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard it. Was that, hey, children, you are dismissed. Man, I almost forgot. Somebody should have shouted at me. You guys know that. Uh, children, you are dismissed. Thanks. Uh, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, rakah, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Verse 26 through 27, or 27 through 28, excuse me, you have heard it said, That it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man, verse 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verses 33 through 35, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but I fulfill to tell the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, verse 34, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 38 and 39. You have heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. In verse 43 through 48, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not, do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just pray, because we're going to need it today. Uh, Father, we give you this time. We give you these words Jesus, may we see your words clearly for what they are. May we not write them off as good suggestions, but may we see them as our very life. That you're inviting us into an upside-down kingdom. That through your death, we have our life. And through your words, we live and we obey delightfully and joyfully, not begrudgingly. Help us to be a people who embody this message that you preach to us today. Help these weak and soft and, and failing words of mine Preach your good news to our longing hearts. And Holy Spirit, preach a better sermon than I ever could. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. And so it's important as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we're taking weeks to look at this sermon, but what we must understand is that this was preached in one sitting. That it wasn't broken up, it wasn't choppy, it wasn't disconnected, that it it was fluid. It moved from one thing to the other to the other. 
And what we're doing is it's really hard to, to see the interconnectedness of this message after week after week after week. And what Jesus is doing here is he's unpicking back up from 17 and 20 in Matthew 5. And what you must see is Jesus is saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Rather, I have not come to do that. I've come to fill it full. I've come to finish it. I've come to complete it and continue that which its purpose was made to do. He, he did not come to wipe it all away as if uh, it, it's just null now. He came to do what it was intended to do. He came to bring life and life to the fullest, which is every command of God is there for us to give us what, church? life with him. And so Jesus is just continuing that message. And he says, verse 17 of Matthew 5, don't think I've come to abolish it or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not one dot, not one iota, the least stroke of the pen, verse 18, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then he, he just ends in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey, here's what Jesus is saying. You want to live by the law? You want to, truly, you want to live by the law? Guess what? You're going to die by the law. You want to live by the law? You'll die by the law. Matter of fact, not just that, your righteousness must be that greater, if, if not as more than the Pharisees and the scribes. It's an impo Jesus is painting an impossible task. Here's the reality, church. We can do all the right things. We can say all the right things. You can speak Christianese. You know what I'm talking about? You can raise your hands at the right moments of a song. You can offer the right sacrifices. But there is only one sacrifice that pays for your sin, and his name is Jesus. Amen? There's only one blood of the Lamb that covers our sins, and its name is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And Jesus comes and he's saying, he tells his followers, those who grab hold of me, those who by faith grab hold of me and the righteousness I give them, they will have a righteousness that exists outside of themselves, outside of their behavior, outside of the law. Does that make sense? So you could either live your life on the basis of your law righteousness and your law abiding and your law doing and hop on that treadmill or you can hop on me. My burden is light. <laughs> I'll do the work for you. And we'll let Jesus be our righteousness. And we'll let Jesus claim our, our, or plead our case. And Jesus is saying, he's painting these pictures. So in each one of these areas, we're going to look at all six areas this morning. He's saying, I, you can live the, your life based on your own works and your own behavior as a merit before the Father, or you can receive my merit before the Father. You could die by your works, or you can live by mine. Which one is it, church? I am your righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus is going to do now in verses 21 through 48 is apply verse 20 to our lives. He's not going to leave it up in the air. He's not going to dangle it up there in the clouds. He's actually going to say, my kingdom disciples, my followers, this is what they look like. This is what they do. And this is how they behave. He doesn't leave us guessing the interpretation of the law. No, he gives us the interpretation of the law. And it's awesome. 
and it's hard. And I'm weak, church. Like I was just telling someone before this message, uh, the beautiful part about preaching through the Bible and like verse by verse and book by book is you can't get around these types of passages. <laughs> like you have to preach them. The topical messages are good. I'm not saying that. It's just not the primary way that we do things around here because you can pick and choose the easy ones. You know what I'm saying? Because the flesh is weak. Topical messages are okay. Don't hear me knocking those. We just choose. I know myself, and I think the elders and, and other pa- or preachers around here know themselves well enough that we'll avoid the hard passages that Jesus gives us, and, and the low dangling fruit will knock it out of the park, right? And so Jesus is saying these, these are some tough things. He repeats, look, you have heard it was said, you have heard it was said, you have heard it was said, but I say, so he begins these contrasts, not of what the law is saying, but how they have heard the law interpreted. It's very important that we understand that. Jesus is not wiping out the law. He's actually wiping out their understanding of it and their own interpretations of it. Does that make sense? You have heard it said. It's an important observation. So Jesus seems to be concerned with two things as we walk through each of these uh, six topics. He seems to be concerned with overthrowing a rigid, man-made observation of the law and traditions and indicating with authority the real direction in which the Old Testament points to. (laughs) So so he's uprooting a few things. He's going to take six areas. Look at this. Anger, lust, divorce, manipulation, retaliation, loving your enemies, And he's going to show us what true righteousness looks like. Jesus is not concerned with theoretical righteousness, church. I mean, he means what he says. 1 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is pulling from Leviticus 11, and he's saying, be holy as your God is holy. It's not an option. It's a command. And for those in Christ, church, we just got to, I have to say this, for those in Christ, it's not just a have to be holy. For those who have been changed by the good news of the gospel, it's a want to be holy. (laughs) There's now a new desire in you that you desire holiness. You desire right living before a holy God. Not as a means to earn your righteousness, but because you already have it. It's what Devin talked about last week with David. He's only responding to what he already has in God. So Jesus wants to take these areas of our life and actually show us what it means to be transformed by the gospel. Uh, Jesus didn't come to make us outwardly nice. He came to make us inwardly new. And the new life that Jesus brings reaches deep down into our soul and it changes the very essence of who we are. It actually changes you from the inside out. He shows us in each of these six areas how the kingdom of God comes to bear on a Monday, a Friday night, a Saturday morning, a Wednesday morning. He shows us what it looks like to actually be changed every minute of every single day by the good news of the gospel. That's awesome. So let's dive in. Verse 21. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is the sixth commandment of the ten, a basic part of the kingdom ethic and covenant living. And I think we would all agree, right, that, that this here, to see murder eradicated would be an awesome thing, right? To see murder eradicated from society would be an awesome, we would celebrate that. But don't you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying murder is just the last stop on the train of anger, is it not? 
You, you can put all the external restrictions on it that you want and things that we want to do, but unless we actually become less angry people, unless there is a way to transform the human heart and remove the problem of anger, the problem of violence will always be there, won't it? What most people will tell you, the, the secular way of thinking is you just need to learn to control your anger. <laughs> and, and if you tell an angry person that, guess what they're going to be? <laughs> and you're going to get punched, or you should. You need to come up, or you need to come up with coping mechanisms, just, okay, breathing techniques, and you, you need to manage your anger, and you need to funnel it in, in the right direction, and then everything will be okay. Guys, if you tell an angry person that, that's just going to make them more angry. It's, it's behavior modification, good techniques. Do not hear me say those are, I do breathing techniques, just FYI. I do. I do. But is it the means to stop my anger? Does it work to stop my anger? No. It doesn't get rid of it. It's still there. I just chop off the root. <laughs> to keep it suppressed and learn to display it in healthy ways just as, as good advice, but it's not good news, is it? And what we need is good news, not good advice. God in his word, even, even those techniques, says uh, in James 3, verse 7, if you want to, you should turn there. James 3, verse 7. Uh, says, for every kind of beast of, uh, and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So it's like, so you want to stop your anger? You can't even stop your tongue. <laughs> you can train an elephant to do funny tricks, right? But you can't even control your own darn tongue. It's impossible for you to do. Impossible. And so Jesus is saying it, 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 to give good advice has no power to change you. But remember, Jesus has come not to make us outwardly nice, but to come to make us inwardly new. So Jesus is concerned with reaching deep down into our heart and, because, and cutting away that which is not from him and changing our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel 36 and 37 says. And in the gospel, he's done just that. Because when he has your heart, your behavior will follow. Right? It's what we say when we, when we offer up an offering here at the church. We say, don't give to Jesus, or don't give to this church. Give to Jesus. He wants your heart more than he does your offering. Because when he has your heart, your behavior will follow. It just will. And here's the thing. When we, when, whether we want to admit it or not, we all have some sort of anger, don't we? I mean, I was this yesterday. You can ask my wife. I hopped in the car, and it seemed... now. Listen to me. It seemed like there was just a bunch, I'm just going to be kind of mean here, it seemed to be just a bunch of dumb drivers on the road yesterday. And I'm like, maybe that was you, so I'm sorry, and I owe you an apology. Only yesterday. Yeah, right, yeah. But like, it was like four or five different cars, and I was like, I was like feeling it, you know? Like, I was angry. I was in a bad mood, and I was angry. And, and, so what do we do? If, if that's there, how do I change that? It's, it's where behavior modification doesn't work. Jesus has been teaching us what it means to be, go back even to the Beatitudes. It's upside down. It's inside out. It's, it's the world will tell you one thing, and Jesus will take you right into a completely different direction. What if anger is, is revealed in my heart if the only thing that we do is to pray to God to remove this anger in my heart, that's where you begin, but it's not where you stop. 
It's of course where you go. It's, it's of course where you begin. But what must you do with it? It's what Devin preached on last week. It's, it's going to take an active, intentional response on, response on our part. An active obedience of not letting anger have its way with us, church. The way we're going to be transformed in the gospel is not merely hearing and reading the word, but it is by obeying, by a faith-driven obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting that God's way is just better than my way. Amen? Look at verse, this is just awesome. Verse 23 and 24, it rocked me this week. And I had to do something with this. Don't you dare for a moment think that I don't, that I'm talking at you. I am talking with you. I need this message more than you do. I promise you that. I'm a far greater sinner than you definitely are. <laughs> Read verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Look at this. Notice it doesn't say you, in verse 23, you have something against them. But rather, what does it say, church? They have something against you. You, you recognize that, that there's this gap. You're aware that there's a distance between you and a brother and sister or a sister. You, what must you do? You must not just be aware of it and sit there in it. You must do something about it. You leave your gift at the altar. You go to them and you make amends. You don't just stay aware of it. You do something with your awareness. Jesus is not okay with passive obedience. He wants active Holy Spirit-fueled obedience. You leave your gift. Look at verse 25 and 26. Settle the matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. See, what Jesus is saying is he wants to cultivate a renewed kingdom heart in you. What does it look like then? You practice virtue. You practice intentionality. You go to the person you have something with and you reconcile it quickly. You don't let it fester. You don't let it boil. You turn off the heat. <laughs> no one who reads the words of Jesus can think that you can just do the external work and that's good enough. <laughs> but you see this, right? Jesus is most angry with the people who are only doing the external work. <laughs> the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious elites. He had a problem with that. Jesus is saying, the way you uproot the roots of anger in your heart is by recognizing them, praying about them, and doing something with it. Take the tangible action that, that refuses to let things grow anymore. Can, church, can you just imagine this type of community? Can you imagine a community that doesn't let the roots of anger fester? Can you imagine a community in which there's any, if there's any separation and any awareness, whether you're right or wrong in the matter, you pursue that person to make amends with them? Can you imagine that upside-down nature of that kingdom? You see it? Jesus is calling us to this kingdom covenant living ethic. It's a heart that refuses to let the roots of anger and bitterness grow at all. You kill it. You cut it off. And, and you may be saying, 
Well, didn't Jesus get anger? angry? Yeah, he got angry. The difference between his anger and my anger is that my anger has a selfish motive and a personal offense. <laughs> and Jesus' doesn't. There's a place for burning anger and sin at injustice and, and racism and all of the idolatry and all of, the, 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 all of those without a voice getting beat up in this world today. All of the, the harshness and the tone and all of those things in this world. There's a voice for that. Yes, there's a place for that. Out of a pure motive fueled by Jesus. Not out of personal offense and personal agenda driven. Does that make sense? We're by and large quick to be angry when we're personally offended and affronted and slow to be angry when sin and injustice happen around us. We are quick to be angry at other people's sin rather than be angry with our own sin. (laughs) And Jesus just flips it upside down. The Sermon on the Mount, the definite point is that anger is forbidden, but he's not forbidding all anger. It's the anger that arises from gospel intentionality in pursuit. To make the gospel known. And Jesus is just going to continue to say some things that rub us the wrong way. So let's go. Look at verse 27. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the seventh of the Ten Commandments. And we can all agree, right, that adultery is damaging, isn't it? Adultery breaks families up. Adultery splits marriages up. Jesus is not merely uh, content with a formal adherence to the law, nor is he simply just being rigid to the law. Jesus, again, is going to point out the, uh, the obvious. You don't just go from zero to adultery, do you, church? Adultery is the last stop on the train of lust. <laughs> So lust by nature is when, when you're doing this, you're objectifying. You're treating that person, a God-created person who holds the Imago Dei, as an object to be used instead of a human being to be made in the image of God and valued in the image of God. You are objectifying that person, and it's evil and it's sinful. So lust by nature is dishonoring and dehumanizing. It takes a human being and makes them in an object for your own use. That's why pornography is so evil. So those who are citizens, adopted children of God and his family will refuse to let lust cultivate in their souls, in their hearts. They will actually stay far away from it. It's the brilliance of verses 29 through 30. And I just got to speed up, so we're going to fly through these things. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And it's one of those statements that, that makes you go, is he serious? <laughs> right? Like one of those statements like, ooh, do you really mean to do that, Jesus? And, and some, guys, I have a story of a police officer here in town who received a call of somebody actually reading this text and he showed up and it was not pretty because he was trying to cut his hand off. Now, is that what Jesus is saying? I, I think it may be missing the point of what Jesus is actually saying here. Because if I take out my right eye, I still have my left. If I cut off my right hand, I still have my left. So the problem isn't merely your eyes or your hand. The problem is your heart. So Jesus is, is pointing out the absurdity of the outside-in approach to life in the kingdom. He's saying, look, do you think that cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye is really going to deal with the problem? 
No, it's just chopping off the root at the surface. And I'm a, I'm a yard geek, and I know that if you just chop off the root at the surface, what's going to happen two days later? It's going to bubble back up. Lust doesn't take place by your hand. It takes place in your mind and in your heart. So he's pointing out the crazy thinking that the way to deal with lust, or any sin for that matter, is through external modifications. You need a new heart. So on one hand, he's showing that, and on the other, he's showing us the importance of taking sin seriously. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's the be-killing sin or sin-will-be-killing-you mindset. Church, Jesus is showing us you don't cage your sin, you don't befriend your sin, you don't excuse your sin, you take it out in the middle of the street and you kill your sin. And if you can't do that, you beg God to do it for you. Amen? Jesus is showing us the seriousness of this of the sin and, and lust and adultery and what it does in your soul. And he's saying it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. He's not preaching a moralistic command here. He's preaching out of a deep-rooted burden to be changed from the inside out. He's driving you into your need for him because you realize that you have tried to stop your lust. You have tried to stop your anger, and you just can't. And in the gospel, there is power over those things, not in your strength, but in your weakness, by confessing that you can't, but he can. Amen? So hear me, church. You can conquer your anger problem through Jesus. You can conquer your pornography addiction through Jesus. You cannot do it on your own, though. Let's go on. Our culture treats sin lightly. It brushes it aside, and Jesus takes sin seriously. And ultimately, the cross shows us just how serious our sin is. He goes on. As if he's not already making a squirm, right? Divorce, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus is, is pulling from, uh, if you want the Old Testament reference, it's Deuteronomy 24, I believe. And Deuteronomy 24 is talking about this. And we're not going to go into the thrust of this passage just for the sake of time. But what Jesus is saying is the culture goes one way with marriage and divorce and kingdom-minded people go another way. Love and marriage in this world today has become a mixture of physical desire, vague sentimentality, and contractual agreements. Has it not? If you do your part, I'm in. If you don't, I'm out. And the way of the gospel people, of the disciples of Jesus, says, I'm not going anywhere even when you fail me. Jesus is calling his people to a, to a here in us today, to a tough-minded, not going anywhere, covenantal kind of love and union in marriage. Why? Because the two have vowed before God to live together for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health until death do us part. Love is determined commitment to seek the other's good, to cherish one another, to shelter one another, to nurture one another, to edify one another, and to show patience with one another. And this commitment is out of a deep-rooted obedience to God, even when it's hard. Those who are changed by the gospel are grieved by divorce, not celebrating divorce. 
They don't want to see divorce happen. It's not the way of the kingdom people. They want to do everything they can to protect against this from happening. I realize this. I realize this. Studies show that over 50% of you have been divorced. There are situations where divorce is allowed, but hear this. There are situations where divorce is allowed, but hear this. It's never preferred. Never preferred. It's never celebrated. It's never good. It's always bad. Not that you're bad in it, but that it is bad. It is broken. It's an expression of the brokenness of this world, that this world is not how it's supposed to be. So for one, the one who loves Jesus, who has been and is being changed by the gospel, divorce is always something to be mourned, not to be celebrated. Jesus wants to restore a high, holy view of marriage between a man and a woman. He wants to to see the question of the religious elites here is, how can I get away with divorce? And the question of gospel-minded people is, how can I keep from getting divorced? Do you see that shift? How can I get away with it rather than how can I keep from it? And I'm just here, church. I'm here to say I've been, we're come, my Aaron and I are coming up on 10 years of marriage this May. Man. And let me just, let me just say something. Eight years of our 10 years <laughs> has been brutal. <laughs> has been brutal, church. I'm not lying to you. And apart from the grace of God, we would have been out. Done. And apart from the grace of God of giving us a community to just say these simple words, we're not okay. We had someone to go to. We had a community to go to to say, it's not good. It actually stinks. And God began to do a transformation in our marriage just by exposing it to other people. So here's what I want to say as we move on. Please do not suffer in your marriage alone. There is power in getting it out there. There is power in getting it in the light. There is power in letting someone in. The most heartbreaking thing I've experienced at this church is hearing about broken marriages after the fact. So please, as kingdom-minded people, we have every avenue for one another to ask about our marriages. You ask about each other's marriages. You don't just assume they're good. Amen? Deal? All right, deal. Let's move on. There's more there where we have to move on. Verse 33. Again, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but to fulfill the Lord the vows you have made. I want to read verse 34. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Here's what's crazy. Here's what's really, really cool. He's, Jesus is directly uh, alluding to Exodus 20, verse 7, if you're taking notes, uh, Leviticus 19, verse 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 24. Jesus is saying here this, in the same way you're committed to your spouse in covenant marriage, commit to telling the truth without manipulation. When oaths come, that, like, listen, the Jewish people had an entire legalistic system found in the Jewish code of law called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was an explanation of all 613 laws found in the Old Testament and added on to and created man-made additions. 
And what the Mishnah, and what the, the, one of the oaths that Jesus is literally directly referring to here is he's saying uh, is one rabbi unpacked these Old Testament texts as saying, when you swear by Jerusalem, look at verses 34 back in, or by Jerusalem, and 35, verse 35, for it is the city of the great king. When you swear by, one rabbi unpacked this that said, if you swear by Jerusalem, it didn't count. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, it did. <laughs> so it's like crossing your fingers. And so when, when, if you swear by Jerusalem, it doesn't count. It's like crossing your fingers. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, it counts. So now you have to be upheld to your vow. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, don't even do that. That's manipulation. That's not being truthful. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. James, his brother, picks up on it in James 5. Religion and those who follow a set of rules ask the question, how can I get away with manipulation? Gospel-minded people, followers and disciples of Jesus, how can I ask, how can I honor God in telling the truth and following through with my word always? Amen? Then we move on, verse 38. You've heard it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This is just the world's way of thinking, isn't it? You get what you deserve. You did this so I can do this. You did that so I can do that. And it keeps going on and on and on. And this creates a never-ending cycle of retaliation. And church, what's the only way to stop a cycle of retaliation? Scream it out. Stop it. (laughs) Stop retaliating. Diffuse this situation. Someone has to stop retaliating. Look at verses 39 through 42. But I tell you, don't resist that evil person. Turn your cheek. Verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. God in the gospel did not retaliate against us. He could have, couldn't he? He had every reason to retaliate against us. He had every reason to do what we did to him. And he didn't. And Jesus on the cross had every reason to argue his case. He was scorned. He was rejected. His blood was shed. He was treated as nothing. Our king was put on the cross and treated as nothing. And he never said a word. He could have, but he didn't. And as gospel people, we can, but we don't. It's how it works. First Peter 2. Turn there with me briefly. First Peter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Amen and amen and amen. Jesus perfectly practices what he preaches, and those who have been saved by Jesus are freed to do the same. Church, we can undo what we say we believe with how we live our lives, can't we? And in the gospel, we now have power to line those two up, not by our strength, but by his strength. Let's go on. 
He gets to the, the meat of it, the, the ending. It's key to everything Jesus is saying. You, verse 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and, and the sun on righteous and the, the, and the unrighteous. Excuse me. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Some of yours probably says Gentiles. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, you are made to be an image bearer of God. And what sin has done is to corrupt you and break your ability to bear his image rightfully and correctfully. What Jesus does in his life, death, and resurrection and through faith in him is restore your ability to image your Father. So he says, listen, when you love your enemies, even as hard, yes, even that person. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you all thought of someone. You mean love that person? Yes, even that person. When you love them, you're reflecting something about the nature of your father. Because you were once an enemy, and he loved you. While you were enemies of God, Christ died for you. You are doing that so that you may reflect your dad as children. He loves you and you were his enemy, so you get to do the same thing. And all this stuff about not retaliating and turning the other cheek, putting to death anger and lust, what is this all about? It's about reflecting the character of your father in heaven. It's about the upside-down kingdom of covenanting with God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It seems upside down, doesn't it, church, to our flesh? I mean, let's just admit that. It does. Jesus has not come to make you inwardly nice. He has, come to, he has not come to make you popular. He has come to make you new. Look at what he says in verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Are not even the pagans doing that at the end? It's back to Matthew 5, 13. Be salt and be light. Let them see your good works and your good deeds that they may glorify the Father. Live differently in a world that tells you just conform. Jesus says, don't you dare. Live in light of me. Live in response to me. And now verse 48. The point of the gospel Jesus is saying, it's to change you so that when people see you, they will see a reflection of your Father in heaven. Not a perfect reflection. There's grace for that, but an accurate one. Where people look at you, your life, your responses, and what they ought to be seeing increasingly is how God responds. In verse 48, let's read it. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is where I land, and this is where I end. The word perfect here is a horrible translation horrible translation. Because for us, what, what do we think of when we hear the word perfect? We think of flawless. We think of faultless. And if you were to look at my life just this morning, you would see anything but that. Amen. For me, I'm giving that amen. The word perfect here is a bad translation. Now, does Jesus forgive our enemies or does Jesus forgive all our failures in these areas, every single one of them? Yes, he does. But when we hear this word perfect, we think, well, Jesus said we have to be perfect and I can't be. So thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. So I'm off the hook on all these areas to live like this, right? Wrong. 
Jesus is saying, no, I want, you, I want you to be perfect. And that word perfect is the Greek word teleo, T-E-L-I-O, teleo. And in certain cases, it means complete and perfect. But in this case, it means mature, whole, and not lacking anything. <laughs> I want you to be whole. I want you to be holistic. Be whole as your Father is whole. You become more and more complete image bearer of God. You more and more reflect to the world what God is like. Jesus is not creating an impossible task here, but he is giving us a task that we can't do without him. Amen? To become a more incomplete image bearer of God is impossible to do without the power of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is the whole point, church. This is where I'm ending. If we were to actually take this, these serious, these commands serious, we would need more grace, not less. If we were to actually take these commands serious, we need to depend more on his strength and our weakness than we do otherwise. Jesus, we need you. We can't do this without you is what we say. Jesus is saying all of these things to help us see there's a vision of the life of the kingdom of God. He is the kind of person who want, he wants to make us into this kind of person. Here's what the gospel does in and through our bones that makes us different, church. This isn't something that's there to make you say, well, I can't do that. It's something there to make you say, I want to be that. Lord, apart from you, I can't be. So I need you to do a work in me. And I'm saying that, church, not just you. I'm saying that. If this is your goal, to live like this in the kingdom of God, you will find yourself more in need of God's grace in Christ through the gospel, not less. So we're going to pray. We're going to reflect. We're going to ask God to search our souls in ways that we're not like this. And we're going to ask him to do a work in us that we may be changed out of here and actually live differently out of here. It's the difference between hearing the word and doing the word. We do the word out of the word became flesh, not for it. So let's just 30 seconds, pray. We're going to take communion. We're going to float out of here after we worship. Let's just do that. So we just receive from the Lord what he's saying in some silence. I'll pray and we'll sing and take. Lord, we're, we're here. We're, we're here to hear from you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your, your kingdom ethic that you give us. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would be so life-transforming that it would change us from the inside out, that, that we see these words and, and we see these commands and we see all of this and we rest in our identity in you knowing that we don't earn a thing, but rather we get to display your kingdom in this broken, shattered, dark, dark world. Help us to be light. Help us to be salt. But help us not to be able to do it on our own strength, rather from the strength that you give us in our weakness. Help us in our anger or our lust or our retaliated, uh, retaliation and the, the drive underneath all of that. Help our marriages to be secure in you. Help us to be obedient to you, Father. Help us to be changed in that if we're not. 
Help us to forgive our enemies. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to pray for our enemies. Lord, we can't do these things apart from you, so help us. We need you desperately. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we have in you, Jesus, that you lived for us, you died for us, you conquered the, the grave for us, and you gave us the Holy Spirit to enact an obedience that doesn't exist in our, in our own strength. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, for your forgiveness, for your power. Thank you, Father, for pursuing us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to respond, actively respond in, in communion. And we have two different locations. We have one up here. We have one out those doors right on the table directly out. And you also have your packets at your, your seats. Take um, and eat and remember Jesus' body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And if you do not have anything to remember in that, we ask that you refrain from doing so and reflect on why not. It's an opportunity for you to respond actively to the good news of the gospel and receive by faith the hope we have in Jesus. So we're going to take as the Spirit leads you and sing.